Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. I hear often that this is not an essential doctrine like you don't have to fall in the same place as as far as what you believe about this. But I do believe that it's very, very important, and I do believe that we should make every effort to come to a knowledge of the truth because of what Scripture says. Okay, so first of all, the first group are those who interpret through the lens of past fulfillment. Second, there are those who interpret through the lens of historical continuation. Third, there are those who interpret through the lens of spiritualization. And then fourth, there are those who interpret through the lens of future fulfillment. First, let's cover those who interpret the book of Revelation through the lens of past fulfillment. Uh, Sierra was saying this morning how she's noticed there's a buzz on social media right now about eschatology because of uh, Putin's invasion of, of the Ukraine. And, uh, and people are asking the question, is Russia in biblical prophecy? And, and if they are, how does that affect us? And, and they're wanting to know these things about... Um, and so they're all kind of putting their thoughts and opinions out there on social media. And she said, I've just noticed some people saying things that I thought I was in lockstep with and realized, wait, that's what you believe about the end times? And, and that's kind of the experience that you will have if you start looking at what other believers Think about the book of Revelation and how this is fulfilled. Well, it's all, it comes down to these four categories. First, those who interpret through the lens of past fulfillment. Across the years, there have been a group of interpreters who believe that all of these things spoken of in the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled. These folks are known as preterists, and the word comes from the Latin word praetor, and that means past, so it happened in the past. And there are partial preterists, which believe that only some of the things in Revelation took place in the past. And then there are full preterists who actually believe all of the things written in Revelation have come to pass and that we are now living in the eternal state, okay? And these two groups can be broken down, again, into two subcategories. First, uh, the Neronianists, and obviously a reference to Nero, who believe that all of these prophecies were fulfilled in the days of the Roman Caesar Nero. Uh, Nero reigned from A.D. 54 to 68, and during that time, Peter and the Apostle Paul and many of the saints of that day were persecuted and even martyred. Uh, Nero was the first emperor who really made an effort to persecute the church of, of Jesus Christ. He actually publicly blamed Christians for setting the, uh, the city ablaze, and it consumed uh, a large portion of Rome. And as a result, angry mobs would search out and find Christians, and they would crucify them and set them on fire along the streets of Rome to light the streets. That's known as Roman candles, our uh, Christian bodies being crucified and burned along the streets. The second subcategory are Domitianists. They believe that Revelation was written in the days of the Roman Caesar Domitian. And he reigned from 81 AD to 96. Now, the very obvious issue with this is that most scholars believe that the book of Revelation itself wasn't written until uh, the 90s, uh, in the 90s AD. And so both of these, one, they only lived in the 50 AD, and this one in 81 to 96. So they say the two beasts in Revelation 13 are first Nero and second uh, Domitian. And again, these two emperors were the first two emperors to really focus on persecuting and killing believers. Now, the preterist view originated mostly from interpreters that came out of Roman Catholicism. So why would they change the interpretation? Why would they interpret it in this way? Well, early on, there were strong assertions from many of the theologians that the harlot and the one world religion actually pointed to Roman Catholicism. And they based these assertions on uh, Revelation chapter 17, where it speaks of the seven hills or the city of the seven hills. And in antiquity, Rome was known 
as this city that was built on seven hills. And so that is why they believed that Roman Catholicism was the harlot. And as you can imagine, Roman Catholics didn't like that very much. Uh, and so they decided, well, what else could this mean? It, it, we know it doesn't mean us, so what could it mean? And then, of course, they began to look at it through this different lens, okay? To me, though, this is the real issue with preterism. They take the book of Revelation and they make it a historical literary relic of the past, and that is actually all it is to them. It has no real meaning other than just the way we would look at historical narrative in the Old Testament. That's kind of how they look at the book of Revelation. It has no real applicable message for us today. They make it a puzzling script written in apocalyptic language. And as I mentioned in the the last study, we talked about apocalyptic language. It's a kind of literary embellishment that the Jewish people were accustomed to writing in uh, in those days. And it was in order to tell an epic story, right? So if, uh, for instance, if someone was rewriting David and Goliath, they might make Goliath 60 feet tall instead of like 12 feet tall, right? So that's, that's an example of what apocalyptic writing would do. And so they say, well, this is just, Revelation is apocalyptic writing. According to the preterist view of the Revelation, it had a message for those who lived in the days of Nero or Domitian only, and again, has no real message for us or application for us today, other than seeing the nature of God. Now there, to me personally, I believe there's a danger in dogmatically stating as a fact that Christ has already returned in 70 AD and um, first of all, anytime a modern belief has a history in Scripture of being uh, warned about as a false belief, that's something that should be noted. That doesn't mean it's always a false belief, but it should be noted, obviously, as in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. You might earmark that because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. He says, Uh, Do not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if it's from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not come unless the apostasy comes first. There are two thoughts on the apostasy. One is that the apostasy is a great falling away, that, that the church itself... Uh, will apostatize and the majority of the church will wear the badge of Christianity, but then there will be a true church within that larger visible church. And so that's called the apostasy, the falling away. The other um, um, interpretation of apostasy, uh, there's, there's evidence that it could actually be referring to the rapture, that the, it's a catching away, not a falling away. And so uh, it, he says, Uh, For it has not come unless the apostasy, either way, the falling away or the catching away, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who's the man of lawlessness? It's the final Antichrist, okay? And, And he's mentioned here as the son of destruction. So at the very least, even if I did ascribe to preterist viewpoints or their interpretation, I would be very cautious in that because... Uh, I would just want to keep in mind that I could be wrong, and you don't want to live your whole life as a believer pointing backwards and saying Jesus already came back and and then find out later on you spent your whole life pointing in the wrong direction that Christ was actually coming. So I would just say have an open mind about that, and uh, and that goes with all of these viewpoints as well. Uh, next is the those who interpret through the lens of historical continuation. Historical continuation. And these interpreters of Revelation look at Revelation as being a panoramic historical uh, event. So it's describing all of the events of history in in this book of Revelation, meaning this. It's a bird's eye view of the history of the church and the history of the world, beginning in the apostolic days all the way through the consummation of the final age or the conclusion. So what they see when they read Revelation is they see the history of the world pre-written in all of these symbols and signs and visions. And they they see the rise of the lineage of the popes in Catholicism. They see the corruption of the church, the falling away of the church. They see 
the great reformation, the reformers of the past, and all the stories of humanity and the rearranging of the different nations rising to power and falling away until the Lord comes again. That's how they, they view it. And uh, the men that propagated this interpretation of the book are most often called today amillennialists. And this interpretation has been around again in Catholicism for centuries, but it really gained traction among the Reformers uh, during the time of Luther and, and following those years. Those early Reformers, as I would say, um, did an amazing job clarifying biblical truths concerning the doctrines of grace. And, and we're all very, very grateful for those Reformers who did so. But I believe they stopped shy of reforming all of uh, Catholicism's beliefs. I believe they should have kept going all the way through the end of the book and reformed even the eschatology of the Catholic Church. Um, here's a really serious issue that I see with this particular interpretive approach and the one that follows. It makes the whole book practically indiscernible, and I want to explain that to you. It leaves the meaning of the text up to the opinions of the reader. And if you put five odd millennialists in a room, you'll see how quickly their system breaks down because they're trying to plug things in uh, to this panoramic hist historical narrative, and they all have different opinions. So where one interpreter sees the sixth seal in Revelation as a reference to Constantine, another one connects the sixth seal to the first French Revolution. Well, which one is right? We don't know. Neither one could be right. When, the, when they read the star falling from heaven, one interpreter would see a good angel and the other interpreter would see the false prophet Muhammad. When we read of the scorpion locusts that have power for five months, to one interpreter, they see 150 years of the domination of the Muslims, uh, the Ottoman Empire, but to another, they see the Goths. And to another, he would see the Jesuits. You see, you see how that, that works or doesn't work? It, it makes everything arbitrary and it leaves it up to the opinion, which leaves there to be no real meaning, okay? And I, I don't believe that is an honest and genuine um, caring for what the text actually says. Because it, you could make it mean anything and go whatever direction that you believe logically makes the most sense. Can I get an amen? Do you under, understand that? Okay. So I believe we're supposed to have unity in what we believe. I, I really believe that. And so if we don't agree on things, if, we, if it's just everybody's opinion, how are we ever to agree on what the Bible actually says? And that is why I am as strict as a person could possibly be when it comes to handling Scripture. I believe we're supposed to know. I believe we're supposed to be certain. And, uh, and so when I see things like this, I just can't get behind it, okay? Um, when interpreters try to make the book of Revelation a panoramic history puzzle, uh, and they use different events as puzzle pieces, by the way, they give the folks today, like premillennials, a really hard time for looking at the headlines. They call it newspaper exegesis. They're ripping things out of the headlines, trying to cram it in Revelation, you know, saying, oh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Jesus is coming back tomorrow, right? Uh, but they're doing the same exact thing. They're just looking at the newspaper, newspapers from the past. It's exactly the same thing. It's newspaper exegesis. So they take all these different puzzle pieces from, from, from history and they try to cram it in these holes until it's so convoluted that it's practically meaningless. It becomes a puzzle that no one can solve, okay? And, and I don't believe that this particular interpretation can really be defended from a place of certainty. I will say this, though, with both preterism and amillennialism, and I have uh, great dear friends who are in both of those camps. I love them, okay? We just happen to disagree on, on this particular uh, portion of Scripture, but some of them, man, they make an excellent case and they do it ingenuously. They make great arguments. They make it sound very plausible. They, they pull scriptures and they build this framework and, and they can lay it out and it sounds awesome, okay? But I have personally found as I've studied these other interpretations that it, for me, as, I, as the scriptures that I know is, is uh, caused far too many contradictions in other passages and 
They have to ignore other passages in Scripture in order to make it work. And that's always a no-no. And I'm certain they would come back and say, well, no, we don't. We don't ignore anything. We don't twist anything. That's what everybody says, right? We all say that, that we're all right. We all think we're right. That's kind of our problem. So next, that's why we know God's Word is right and we should do everything we can. Next, those who interpret through the lens of spiritualization. So there have been many folks in the past, beginning early in the probably the well late second century, early third century, these these men who start interpreting scripture in a spiritualizing way. And they believe that the book of Revelation is just symbols and metaphors of the great struggle between good and evil, right? The yin and the yang, just fighting it out throughout uh, human history. And to them, Revelation is not a futuristic prophecy, but rather um, they focus more on the moral implications that lie behind what the text actually says. So it's not, don't look at what it says, look at what it's supposed to mean behind what it says. It doesn't mean what it says, okay? And uh, they would say, again, um, all the forces of good, all the forces of evil, fighting one another until the ultimate triumph of good over evil. And immediately we find ourselves in the same boat that we were in with the, with the former, is that when you begin to spiritualize, allegorize, idealize what is written in Scripture, um, it once again is left up to the opinion of the reader, and everybody can come from uh, you know, seven different directions and what they think this means, and spiritualize it right out of its meaning, Okay. And that's a slippery slope. Again, we are to take pains to interpret the clear meaning of Scripture and accept the book for what it says, for what it means. And we have an obligation to deliver its message the right way. Now, there are going to be many things in Scripture that for a period of time we don't fully understand. And there will be areas in which we have to trust the goodness of God, that He is always good and He's always just, and we have to just put our faith in Him and, and understand that we won't know until we know in eternity. However, um, to take the inspired Word of God and spiritualize it, 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 I believe, puts you in danger of watering it down or emptying it of its meaning. All right? And so when we look at this text, what does it mean? Does it mean what it says? And if it doesn't mean what it says, then why does it not mean what it says? And if it doesn't mean what it says, then how are we supposed to know? What's the key? What's the, what solves the puzzle for us to understand it, okay? Well, we have to get to the heart of the intended uh, meaning of the writer of the book of Revelation, which is the Holy Spirit, and given from God through an angel, through the Spirit, to John. So just you think about that for a moment. If God did not mean what He said, then what did He mean? And why didn't He just... He's God. Why did He not just say what He meant? Right? It's not like these are parables, and because parables serve that purpose. Colton did a, a fine job preaching on parables. It's not like uh, parables because parables can be understood through the eyes of the believer. But why would God write a book that is just an unsolvable riddle and then say, hey, if you read this and understand it, it's a blessing? That makes no sense whatsoever. So a true man of God will boldly stand in a pulpit with this book open and proclaim to the people what God has said, thus saith the Lord, and therefore because he believes God said it, he must take great care in how he interprets it. And eschatology is no different. We don't use a different measuring rod or a different lens to interpret the book of Revelation. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word. And this is the truth that He has revealed. So, we must take great care, if I have not driven that point home, in how we have interpreted Scripture and we don't just change a horse in midstream you know, and, and we've used one uh, interpretation method for all of other Scripture, and now we're going to use a completely different method for revelation. That's unwise, in my opinion. So first we talk about the preterists, those who believe that Christ returned in 70 A.D., and everything in Revelation was fulfilled centuries ago. 
And then we talked about the historicists with their theory that Revelation is a blueprint, right? It was laid out before the, this history has unfolded or was built. And then we talked about the third group, the spiritualizers, the idealists, who look at the book of Revelation as having no real meaning, okay, uh, in time or human history, but that it meant something, uh, it, that it means something uh, elusive, allegorical, right? And now we come to the fourth group of interpreters, and that these are those who interpret through the lens of future fulfillment, through the lens of future fulfillment. Now, this is the camp in which I apologi- uh, uh, unapologetically set up my tent, okay? I, this, is, this is where I plant my flag, and, uh, and I want you to consider just one thing for a moment. Consider one thing for a moment. Just think through this scenario. If we were to take the Word of God, translated in a specific language, and take it to an indigenous people in the deepest, darkest jungle somewhere, and we were to hand them this Bible, and then we flew off and we left that Bible there, and they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through the reading of that from Genesis to Revelation, okay? After reading it from beginning to end, what would be the final outcome of their theology? What would be the final outcome of their theology? Can the Bible be read and trusted on its own? Or does the reader have to have some ancient key and and know the history of the world and ages past in order to interpret Scripture? Do they have to know about the Catholic Church? Do they have to know about the Reformation and all of the battles and the wars that were fought in human history and the rise and fall of kingdoms? Would that tribe have to know all of that history in order to understand Scripture? I don't believe so. I believe the answer to that is no. I believe that if we dropped a Bible off, those people could read it and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I believe they could read the epistles and know how to conduct themselves in the body of Christ within the local church. And I believe they could read the Revelation and come to the exact same conclusions that the futurist interpretation comes to, which is that Christ is coming back in a future time. Now, I've actually heard... um, pastors, missionaries who said they have done this very thing. They've come back three years later to an indigenous tribe that had no one there teaching them, and guess what they believe when they come back? Christ is coming back in the future. That's what they believe. Now, that's anecdotal. That's anecdotal. That's not a smoking gun or anything, but it's, I, I like it. How about that? I like it. I believe we must read it and interpret it, again, as I have said, the same way that we read all of other Scripture and not change it. Now, I contend today that if you take the text for what it says and you take pains to search uh, search out the meaning of the text, um, again, there's no biblical instruction to change the way you interpret Scripture. So why do it? Why change? Um, I believe that if you do that properly, that you will come to this same conclusion. You follow the narrative of creation. Just walk through it with me. From beginning to end, God has a story. God has a plan. You follow this narrative beginning with creation and and the creation of spiritual and physical beings. You see the choosing of Israel and the nations rebelling. And Babylon uh, at at the beginning as well. Uh, The promises to Israel. You see the coming of the Messiah. You see His redemptive work. You see the rejection of Christ by the people of Israel and them being cut off. You see the gospel preached then through the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, the gospel going out to all nations, the fullness of the Gentiles coming to a close as we read in Scripture, Um, God fulfilling His promises to Abraham's descendants, and the consummation of all things, a return to an eternal Edenic state. And I believe that if you will just read Scripture that you will find those bullet points, this narrative from beginning to end, and at the end it will be clear when you read the book of Revelation that Christ is coming back in the future. Okay? Just like in Genesis, we get the account of the creation. We see in Revelation at the end of the book the uncreation of fallen man. He's got to deal with fallen man. And we see the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth, and a brand new reality that we get to be a part of. 
So we follow in the revelation the things that will lead up to that, that great final conflict and conclusion. And this is a description of the coming majestic King Jesus in power and glory as He takes His rightful dominion over the earth and all of creation in His millennial reign. And these pages tell of how He will destroy wickedness forevermore. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. He is going to destroy it forever. We see Him bind the devil, our ancient enemy, and throw him first into a bottomless pit. And then later, He's thrown, cast into the, into the lake of fire. And then we will see... In the pages of Revelation, we will witness Him lead His household, His holy family, His chosen family forward into the light of eternity, a sinless eternity. And ultimately, in the pages, as I said, we see this this beautiful depiction of a new heaven and a new earth. And heaven, folks, if you're ever confused about what heaven is, heaven is where God is. So wherever God is, that's where we want to be, okay? So right now, He's up there somewhere, but in the end, at the end of the book, there's a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem where God dwells, and we will dwell with Him forever and ever and ever. It's a beautiful story, but I want to lay this out for you more. I know I'm talking fast. Uh, If I'm talking too fast, you can go back and watch it three times, okay? So most of the things that are written in the book of Revelation have never come to pass. They've never been fulfilled, all right? And If you just look at history and you're completely honest, can you really say that the things that we see in Revelation have taken place? Is it really honest to look back and see the the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD actually equates to uh, the things that we read about in Revelation, this epic conclusion? Um, Some of those groups we mentioned before point to the destruction of of, uh, Jerusalem as being the fulfillment of this. But that, again, forces them to admit that the Word of God embellishes the facts, that it's using some form of literature that stretches the truth. And I just can't accept that. I won't accept that. And I'm honestly stunned when I hear people say that we are in the millennium right now um, or that we're in the eternal state right now. I mean, I want my money back if that's the case, right? Like, this is not what I'm reading in Scripture. This, this, you overpromised, right? You oversold. <laughs> uh, but, but seriously, you look around this world, do you see that Satan is bound in this world right now? Is that even possible in any way, shape, or form? Uh, if this is the millennium or eternity with all the death and the misery and the injustice, the heartache and tears, suffering and war, disease, uh, child sex trafficking, sexual abuse, worry, fear, terror, the list goes on and on and on, and you want to tell me that Satan is bound? What we're seeing today are the effects of God's creation that has rejected their Creator and have instead bowed their knee to the God of this world, the devil. If it already happened, folks, then the words don't mean what they say. And that's a really precarious place to be. But if you just read it without trying to be too clever, let it speak for itself as you read all the other uh, books of the Bible, I believe that you will see very clearly the dead are going to rise, God's going to give us a new home, and one day we're going to look upon Jesus with our own two eyes, and we're going to be able to lay hold of Him with our own two hands, and that's our glorious future. All of these things are ahead in future. Now, if you'll look with me um, at verse 3, there's something else I want you to notice there. It says that these are pro- this is a prophecy. It's a prophecy. The book, the book of Revelation says that before the day of the Lord, there will be unprecedented trials and troubles and tribulations. Unprecedented, okay? And, and scriptures point to this fact. And it's not just Revelation alone that talks about this. It's talked about in other scriptures. I want to give you a few examples. Turn to Matthew 24, where we were this morning. Matthew 24, 21 through 22. Matthew 24, 21 through 22. For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world 
until now, nor ever will. Now, just keep in mind, there was a flood that destroyed every human being on the face of the earth, save one family. All right? So it's saying it's going to be greater than that cataclysmic, catastrophic event that turned the world upside down. All right? says there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days have been cut short, no life will have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He's saying it's going to be so catastrophic that if it were prolonged, everybody in the earth would die again. That's what it's saying. It's fairly clear. Unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever happened. Nothing like it will ever happen afterwards. He also said says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun's going to be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars are going to fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. It's like the uncreation. Do you understand? He created it in Genesis, Revelation. He is recreating it, all right? The Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because they are going to be caught unaware and they have been rejecting Christ and shaking their fists in the face of God, and all of a sudden they're going to look up and see with their own two eyes the King of kings and Lord of lords coming, and it says, And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So what Jesus said in Matthew 24 is exactly what we see broken down in the book of Revelation. There's no mystery here. Jesus talked about it. Then it's revealed in more detail to John. Jesus never told His disciples, by the way, hey guys, don't take this stuff uh, like literally, okay? This is allegory. This is spiritualized. Don't, like, don't make a mistake here, guys. Don't get it wrong. He never said anything like that. He always spoke as if this was what was going to take place. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 9. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 9. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-9. through 9. Now we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as is from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not come unless the apostasy comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the sanctuary of God, exhibiting himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was still telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. There's a restrainer here. The people of God, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer holding back the the man of perdition. Okay, And it says that he will not be revealed until the Spirit is taken out of the way. The people of God are taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So people who want to always point to the miracles and say, that's evidence of God, I tell you that in the end times, there are going to be false signs, false wonders, and um, false miracles. All right. The same prediction is a part of Revelation as well. We see it just in more detail. So... That is the first reason why I'm a futurist, because unless you start playing with the text, allegorizing, spiritualizing it, it's obvious that these things have not yet taken place. Um, If these things had taken place, like something like the flood of Genesis, I think we would have noticed, right? We would have noticed these things. Um, We're going to see, we won't see these things, but the world will see these things coming about. And, and here's where people get confused, and this is why premillennialists get a bad name. This is why futurists get a bad name. Because uh, Putin invades Russia and everybody starts screaming, this is it, this is the big fulfillment, this, Jesus is coming back tonight at 722, right? And, and they, begin to, they begin to use events of today. Here's the deal. 
Things are going to keep going this direction. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. It's like a pregnancy. It's going to get larger and larger and larger, and eventually the birth pangs are going to begin. The contractions begin. And the baby's about to be born once they get more intense and closer together. That's the way we look at it. So we shouldn't be alarmed by anything we see. This is just humans being humans, doing their thing, acting sinful, trying to conquer, trying to be God. And that's going to be what we see over and over again until Christ returns. And it gets so severe. Um, Ladies who have had babies, you know what we're talking about when it talks about birth pangs and having a baby, right? Yeah, there is... There is a child coming, and that child coming in this depiction is Christ's return to the earth. All right, I have a second reason for believing that the futurist method of interpretation uh, is, the, is the one that we should adhere to. I want you to look at the text carefully again. It's a prophecy. It is a prophecy. It is a prophetic glimpse into the future politics and government of earth. All right? The Revelation says that the tide is inevitably pulling humanity toward a one worldwide totalitarian government under a dictator, and that is globalism. And all you have to do is watch videos from the World Economic Forum. All you have to do is listen to Bill Gates. All you have to do is listen to some of these guys. And while they may not be the ones who bring this about, they're marching uh, headlong that direction. That is where they are going. That is the mindset. And what Scripture tells us, it's not just those men. It's actually the demonic forces behind those men that are driving them in that direction. The Revelation says that the, that, uh, the tide or the current is inevitably pulling all religion toward one worldwide religion. Well, do we see this taking place in our world today? Absolutely. We see everybody just, oh, let's just... Be one big happy family. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's all about love. Folks, this one world religion is going to uh, unite under the banner of tolerance and love. That is going to be their mantra. All right? And we need to understand that those things, as we see the different religions coming together into one unified uh, group of people that we're heading in that direction. It doesn't mean it's the fulfillment yet. It means we're headed that direction. Now, the text also says that the angel signified or signified these things to John. Did so in signs. A very simple question. While you're driving down the road, what do road signs warn you of? They warn you of what's ahead, right? I grew up in Wyoming. There's like these elk crossing signs. There's falling rock signs. There's missile test site signs, there's bear crossing signs, and you're driving like this, what's going to happen? Like when you first start driving, like this is, a, this is a, a dangerous situation driving out across here. Well, these signs in Revelation tell you the very same thing. Not that it's dangerous, but that you need to be, as a believer, you're secure. You need to be aware and alert, all right? Be watchful. And these things are a comfort to you. These are not to get you all riled up and freaked out. These are a comfort to God's people. If you're freaked out about the second coming, we should probably sit down and have a talk, okay? And and I'm being serious about that. Like, if you're really freaked out and scared of the second coming, we should probably sit down and and look at the gospel and and talk through the gospel. And let's be certain that, that you understand what it's all about because you shouldn't be afraid of this. You should be looking forward to this, all right? So in... The darkness, this is comfort that in the midst of darkness and disaster, wars and tribulations, rumors of wars, uh, that we as God's people can lift up our faces and know that we are secure and our redemption is drawing near. We can look at this and be comforted and be encouraged. God has revealed these things in order that we might know them. And again, I don't believe it's supposed to be a guessing game. Or like, as I was telling Krista this morning, a shopping experience where we've got these four, five, six pairs of shoes up on the, up on the, uh, the shelf there. And, and as a Christian, we just we go and we say, huh, what do I believe about eschatology? I'm going to look at these different uh, four pairs of shoes and choose the one that I like best. Why are we doing that with God's Word? That makes no sense whatsoever. We, again, we don't do that with the doctrines of grace concerning salvation. We don't do that with the doctrines of ecclesiology as far as the conduct of the church. We just pick and choose our favorite ones. 
I don't believe we're supposed to be all over the map on this. I think we're supposed to be unified, and I believe with all my heart that it really matters. So then what then is the meaning of this prophecy to those Asian churches of, of their day, because it did have a meaning for them, and what does it mean for us? As the millennialist looks at it and says, this is, this is the unfolding, a depiction of the unfolding of, of the history of, of the world from the, the uh, Pentecost really on to the end, I would actually say there is one section of this book of Revelation that I would agree in relation to the church, and that's the letters to the churches. And we see that unfold, and I believe that that is a, a depiction of the church age. And, and it begins with good churches and bad churches, but at the very end, it's the church of Laodicea. It's this church that is lukewarm, and God says, because you're neither hot nor cold, essentially of no use, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And I believe that will be what the church looks like after the apostasy, after the, the falling away. We become more and more worldly to where we are of no use, and God says, I can't use you anymore. You're of no good. So it does mean something to them, and it does mean something to us, as I mentioned. After that seventh letter, um, John is caught up into heaven in Revelation, and then you never see the church mentioned again in the entirety of the book of Revelation. So I believe that is a picture in the book of Revelation of the rapture of the church and how after that fact, the attention is turned to what takes place on the earth. All right, so... um, they would look at the futurists and, and this, this text, these time texts, and they would say that how, what other way, um, like, okay, how do I put this? There had to be a meaning for those people. And if you're telling these people that this is going to take place two, three, four thousand years from now, how in the world would that bring them comfort? How in the world would that be fulfilling? And then they, they make a point. Most of the time, in sarcasm, there's one there's one professor that I um, that I heard kind of give an example of this. He he it says um, this word. First of all, the things that must soon happen is the Greek intaki. We get the word tachometer right from that. It's that when the engine revs right, um, and then the time is at hand. That is the word, or the time is near. That is egos, and it seems like it's immediate. It sounds like it's immediate, but is it immediate? Is that what the word actually means? And so then these, these professors, they'll bring up 2 Timothy 4, 9, and where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly. And there's our word uh, in tacky. And, and, and they say, imagine this. Timothy, I want you to come to me here in Rome. Bring the coat that I left with Carpus. I'm cold. I need it, but there's no hurry. Just so you get here in the next two to 3,000 years. So that's how they make the point that that word means immediately. Come immediately, all right? So was Paul telling Timothy, stop what you're doing right now and come immediately? It has to take place right now. Also, they say, you believe John is saying to the suffering persecuted Christians of Asia Minor, wait for a few thousand years, as I mentioned before. And then he says such a meaning would, or such a, an interpretation would have very little meaning to comfort those in need. But let me just ask you this, Christians. Since when are believers supposed to get their peace and comfort from what the world has to offer? Everything I read in Scripture tells me that there are no guarantees about what will unfold in your life. Your job is to trust God no matter what. Our only comfort and security comes from our eternal perspective. Christ Himself said it this way, don't fear those who can kill the body. Like, if you're, if you're Christ's Man, you're an eternal being. You're going to live forever with Him. Don't worry if they kill your body. Worry about the one who can kill the soul in hell. And who's He talking about? He's not talking about the devil. He's talking about God. Worry about God. (laughs) If you're a a sinner, worry about God. And again, all of this is set on God's timeline and not our own. Um, We are held in His hand, and He will not let us go. So we don't take our comfort from our current circumstances. So that, that argument doesn't hold up. But let me just say this. Here's the problem with their criticism put very simply, or the solution, if you will. The phrase in Revelation 1.1 means not only quickly, but there's a catch to that, but it means certainty. Paul's telling Timothy, I want you to come. Like, will you certainly come? He's not telling him, you stop what you're doing and you come right now. And I want to illustrate that to you. 
Look at Romans 16, verse 20. Romans 16, 20. Romans 16, 20. Paul is encouraging the persecuted church at Rome, and here's what he writes. And the God of peace will soon, there's our word in tacky, will soon crush Satan under your feet. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that word here is translated exactly as it is in Revelation. But is Satan crushed yet under God's feet? He's been defeated with the cross. He w- death was defeated in the resurrection. But are we living in the eternal state? Is Satan been completely defeated? Absolutely not. And this was written 2,000 years ago. So the word soon in this sense is not talking about expediency. It's talking about certainty, that God is going to crush Satan under his feet. He's referring to that promise made in Eden, encouraging the saints that this will happen, that God will not make one promise that falls to the ground unanswered. Now here's another instance found in the parable of the unjust judge in Luke 18. Luke 18, Jesus said, Luke 18, 7, verse 7, Now will God not bring about justice for His elect who cry out to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. In tacky, like there's our word. However, when the Son of Man comes, listen to this, will He find faith on the earth? He uses the word, that word, in quick, uh, quickly in tacky, but it also is clear in the text that there's going to be a long delay within the text. So, uh, long in the fact that people will begin to believe that He's not going to keep His word. They're going to be crying out because they're getting impatient, all right? And so long, in fact, that the author is wondering if there's going to be any faithful people on the earth by the time He returns. You see how that's in the text itself? It's understood in the text. So it alludes to a long delay and points to the fact that we're in the last days. Turn to 2 Peter 3.3. 2 Peter 3.3. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? You say He's coming back? Where? When? How? You've been saying this for 2,000 years. This is what it's telling us. There's going to be a long delay, and in the last days, they're going to ask, where is the promise of His coming? If it happens speedily, immediately, then why are people asking the question, where is the promise of His coming? There had to have been a delay. So what is the meaning, again, of intaki translated soon, and egos for the time is near? It's very plain what He means. The words are of certainty, and the words mean that when it happens, when the time comes, it's going to happen like lightning in the blink of an eye. That when God does it, He's going to do it quickly. Not one syllable, as I said, of His promises or His prophecy will fail. He is certainly going to come, and when He does, it's going to be swift judgment, swift action, okay? And also, we see some of these things already coming to pass. We see the cycle of humanity unfolding before our very eyes, but there is a culmination in which all of this stuff will come to pass. Now look at Revelation 18.8. Revelation 18.8 and Revelation 18.10. Revelation 18.8 and 18.10. He's talking about the destruction of Babylon. Remember, Babylon began in Genesis at the Tower of Babel, and it was this ancient, unholy alliance between satanic, spiritual beings, and humanity, and it's still going on today. And this is this being, uh, it's the spirit of the age where our leaders are caught up in this world, this idea of world domination and, and getting everything out of life that we can as far as all of the, 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 uh, the things that the world has to offer. And on the destruction of Babylon, when Babylon finally sees its end, here's what it says. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come. One day. 
pestilence and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And then it says uh, a little bit later, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Now what's, what's understood in this is that there have been thousands of years in which Babylon has come to this place of prominence, world prominence. This, it's the 666, finally the completion of the totalitarian government, the totalitarian rule over finances, and the totalitarian rule and world globalism of religion. Do you understand? So it's all complete. And it's taken 6,000 years for Babylon to rise up and come to this place. And guess what God does in one hour? Flick. Took you 6,000 years to do that. Let me show you what I can do. My judgment is certain and my judgment is coming quickly. 6,000 years versus one single hour. God's clock is not like our clock. God does not compute time, kairos, as we compute time, which is chronos. 2 Peter 3.8 says, One day is with the Lord a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So that's what he means. Look at in Revelation, uh, if you were to look, you don't have to go there right now, but in, in the book of Revelation, uh, in chapter 22, we find these words, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of this book. Behold, I come quickly. Seal not the sayings of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Do you see how it's repeated over and over? It's going to be certain. And when it comes, it will be swift. Okay? And here's, here's what we should take from that. This is what we call the imminency of His return. The imminency, the urgency, the certainty, knowing it will come quickly like a thief in the night, in the twinkling of an eye. It could be in the middle of this message. By the way, we're just in the middle. That was funny. It could be at midnight. It could be in the morning. And what God wills for His children through all of the church age is that we be watchful for His coming, prayerful for His coming, and expectant of His coming. And I truly believe that it pleases God for His children to read the words of the prophecy and then to say in their heart, it may be today, but even more so, I hope, I hope, for the sake of all the injustice in the world, I hope that it is today. I hope for His return. I hope for Him to come back and make all this right again. There's so much suffering and pain in the world. We are to live our lives for His glory in the meantime, expecting that someday, some hour soon, we will see the one that our soul longs for. Quickly I come, He says. And our answering prayer, our response should be, Amen. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love You. We thank You for Your Word and the clarity of Your Word. And Lord, we know that there are many questions that we have um, when we're considering this passage of Scripture and the book of Revelation. But Lord, we pray that You would just continue to open our eyes to see the truth of Your Word. I pray that if there's anyone here that is not ready for Your return, that they would not be caught unaware. But Lord Jesus, they would cry out to You, that they would ask someone that they know and trust to share the gospel with them so that they can be certain that when You return, they will be secure in their walk with You and in their future eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so... We had some questions. There were only two questions. And, I, and if you guys are done, and, and some of you guys are done, and you don't want to sit through this here, I'm going to answer a couple of questions. It's not going to take that long. But uh, you can get up and leave or whatever you need to do. Uh, but otherwise, I'm going to go through these questions real quick. Uh, one of the questions was, um, with this message in mind, uh, speaking of a message that was sent to me, a sermon, how do Jewish people still have any favor with God as they still, as Jewish people, deny Christ as Savior? So if you guys still have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans eleven twenty five 25 real quick. I'm going to show you something really cool in Scripture. Romans eleven twenty five. We have to harmonize Scripture, and that really is the problem with 
with how most people approach the Bible is they, they don't harmonize Scripture. Here's what Paul is writing about this very subject. Romans 11.25 For I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And then look what he says here, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God Himself, Israel is still under a partial judgment, a partial hardening, and God Himself has hardened them partially so they can't see the truth. And so that is a continuation. This is this, uh, the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, how we see that the bones begin to clatter and come together. It's a picture of, of future Israel and how the bones are coming together and the sinews and the muscles are, are taking place. Well, that's what we're seeing over the past uh, probably 100 to 150 years. We're seeing Israel become a nation again. And then all the people are being gathered back to Israel. So the sinew and the muscle and all that is coming on the body again, all right? But this issue of the continuing judgment of God is still on the nation of Israel because of their rejection of Christ. So there are Messianic Jews who see the gospel for what it is now. But then if you go on and read, Paul references Old Test- the Old Testament. He's clearly talking about the actual descendants of Abraham here. He's not talking about replacement theology where the church replaces Israel. That's a no-go, guys, Okay. Um, Jeremiah 35 says uh, it describes a time of great fear and trembling for Israel and, and for Judah where they will come together and they'll never again be separated. Uh, that has not happened yet in human history. Verse 6 in uh, Jeremiah 30 uh, describes a time in a way that pictures men going through the pains of childbirth, again indicating a time of agony as in childbirth. And that's what Jesus was referencing when He mentioned it as well. Um, It says, but there is hope for Judah and Israel, for though this is called the time of Jacob's trouble, right, the time of Jacob's distress, who was Jacob? What What was his name changed to? Israel. The tribulation is about Israel. It's not about the church. We are not appointed to wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you think the church is going to go through the tribulation, you need to just look at what the time of Jacob's trouble means. It's the time of Israel's trouble, okay? It says... um, um, out of this time of distress, the Lord promises He will save Jacob out of this time of great trouble. And then in Jeremiah 30, 10 and 11, the Lord says, I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of exile. Jacob will again have peace and security and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and I will save you, declares the Lord. So we're This encompasses many, many Old Testament passages when we're talking about how to understand the things that Christ said, the things that Paul said, Peter said about the end times, and of course what Revelation says. And then in Acts, uh, very quickly, Peter, this is right after Pentecost, and Peter is preaching in Solomon's portico, and here's uh, what he's saying. He says... uh, He's speaking to Israel, to the men of Israel. He says, "...the things which God announced beforehand by the mouths of all the prophets..." So all the stuff he said about in the Old Testament, about Christ coming and about Israel, he says, "...it has taken place about how Christ would suffer. He fulfilled." So he's done the redemptive work. It is finished. He says, "...therefore, because it is finished, repent and return, so that your sins, Israel, may be wiped away." In order that... So what's the response? What's, what comes next? After Israel's repentance, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He's coming back, that He may send Jesus, who's right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? The, the, who He says, heaven must receive until the period of restoration. So we see here this, this uh, unfolding of events that's going to take place. Number one, Abraham's descendants are going to be cut off. So Israel's going to be cut off. And that happened in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jewish people. And officially in 138 A.D., the ancient nation of Israel ceased to exist altogether. They just, they were scattered around the world like that valley of dry bones. They were dead. Second, we see Abraham's descendants will become a people in their own land again. Approximately 1,800 years later, guys, in 1948, never happened again or before in the history of humanity, 
a nation ceased to exist and then came back and reoccupied their land, retaining their language and their traditions and all the things that made them who they were in the days of Jesus. They came back and reoccupied their land. And isn't it odd how all the politics of the world seem to be focused on the Middle East most of the time and what's going on over there? Uh, Three, the Bible says they will remain under a, a partial hardening until the time of the Gentiles is complete. And the time of the Gentiles is the gospel being preached to the nations. Not to Israel, but to the rest of the nations. God opening up the gospel. And, And Paul says, you better be glad, I'm paraphrasing, you better be glad that they rejected Christ because the kingdom would have been ushered in back then. But because they rejected Him, then now the gospel is opened up to you and I, to the Gentiles. You see how that worked? So while the time of the Gentiles is ongoing, there's a partial hardening on Israel still as, but, but concurrently they are being regathered back to their land, okay? And then the Bible says that the tribulation, the time of Jer- Jacob's trouble, will, will uh, purify Israel, purify Israel. And Paul says that through that tribulation, all Israel will be saved. And, and what that means is very simply, if you survive the tribulation as a descendant of Abraham, then you are pure Israel then you are saved Israel. So that Israel will be joined with the saints of the past, all of the uh, Abraham and Isaac, and then the Lord is going to return once they have repented, as Peter was preaching about, and Christ's going to return for the times of refreshing, which is the millennial reign, and then eventually that uh, what, what Peter called the, um, the, the period of the restoration of all things, which is the consummation. That's when all things are made new. So you got uh, that was Vicky's question, and I gave her a mouthful. I hope that answers your question. They're in a partial hardening. I could have just said that. If you guys have questions, write them down, because we'll do this each time I preach on Revelation. All right. Next question, and there's only two, as I said. Since we do not see America in the Bible, although I personally think it sounds like Mystery Babylon... Uh, and we are the world power right now, should we expect some kind of natural disaster or war to take us out? That's a, that's a great question. That's an interesting question. And I, um, I like that you mentioned Mystery Babylon. You're right, it does, it does sound a lot like Mystery Babylon. Um, but I don't believe that. I believe that Babylon will be a new Babylon that is built up over in the Middle East somewhere. Um, and basically... I don't think there's any need to get fantastical about this. Um, More than likely, what's going to happen is exactly what we see happening right now. We see our power diminish because of poor leadership and compromising of morality and what once made this nation great. And so we will just diminish and diminish and diminish until eventually we are absorbed into this one world kind of government global power. Now, I am one of the most raw, raw, patriotic people out there. However, I'm not a nationalist. I do not put my love of country any, anywhere close to my love of Jesus and, and the priority. Like the United States of America has been used greatly for the spreading of the gospel around the world. I mean, I believe that this country was ordained by God to play the part that it has played in human history. And I am proud of my country but I cannot be proud of a country that continues its Holocaust and the murdering of unborn children and the uh, putting a stamp of approval on homosexual marriage. I just, look folks, we either got to be a people of the book or not, and, and, and we will be a people of the book. And so what we will see is the need for us to draw closer together as the body of Christ because the things that we once held dear as far as the country we lived in and things we were once proud of, those things are going to begin to wane and fade off to where we're going to need one another even more. And I'll be quite honest with you, and I'll close with this. A couple of, uh, it, was, it was about a year and a half ago when uh, I was praying, and, and I was just really impressed. Just in the way the world was going, I'm a pastor. What are you doing for these People, what are you doing for these families? What are you doing for their children to prepare them for what is ahead? This is not something to be afraid of. Again, if you're afraid, let's talk. But it doesn't matter what comes down the pike. 
as a pastor, it is my job to prepare you for what's happening, things like what's happening in Canada, things like what's happening to the folks, the Christians, the believers this morning in the Ukraine. Like we, if you're under the impression that things are always going to be the way they've been the last 150, 200 years, then you're, you're sorely mistaken. There are more difficult times ahead. And so my job as a pastor is to prepare you as parents to prepare your children for what is ahead, to be solid in the knowledge and the faith of Jesus Christ, to be able to look at whatever comes on the road ahead and place their faith firmly in the person of Jesus Christ. And no, I'm not going to be afraid of those that can kill the body. We're invincible. We're going to go be with the Lord. doesn't matter what happens here. And I think we should always have that heart. And in the meantime, you do everything that you can do to fight, okay? I'm not saying lay down like a dog and get kicked in the ribs. That's not what I'm saying. You do everything you can do to stand up for this country, to fight for this country, to, to speak the truth. That doesn't, that doesn't dismiss us from our responsibility. So stand up and fight and speak the truth, but make sure it's God's truth and not your own, okay? And that is our responsibility. And then whatever happens, happens. And, and Lord, whatever you decide, we're, we're with you. We're, we're going to be faithful to you because we know eternally you will be faithful to us. Amen? All right. So let's pray.